I invite you to turn with me in the Book of Praise to page 501, where we find the Word of God confessed by the church in Article 7 concerning the sufficiency of Holy Scripture. So we'll read Article 7. We believe that this Holy Scripture fully contains the will of God and that all that man must believe in order to be saved is sufficiently taught therein. The whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in it at length. It is therefore unlawful for anyone, even for an apostle, to teach otherwise than we are now taught in Holy Scripture. Yes, even if it be an angel from heaven, as the Apostle Paul says. Since it is forbidden to add or to take away anything from the Word of God, it is evident that the doctrine thereof is most perfect and complete in all respects. We may not consider any writings of men, however holy these men may have been, of equal value with the divine scriptures, nor ought we to consider custom, or the great multitude, or antiquity, or succession of times and persons, or councils, decrees, or statutes, as of equal value with the truth of God, since the truth is above all. For all men are of themselves liars and are lighter than a breath. We therefore reject with all our heart whatever does not agree with this infallible rule, as the apostles have taught us, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Likewise, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. So far, our confession. In response to the preaching of the good news, we'll sing about the blessing of God's teaching and word. Psalm 119, stanzas 34, 35, and 36. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, if you go hiking, say in Algonquin Park or something like that, you need some kind of a guidebook to find your way around, otherwise you might get lost. It's also really helpful to have a guide which explains all the many things you see and experience along the way in your hikes the kinds of trees that you are looking at, the kinds of rock formations there might be, or animals like deer or birds, for instance. It's unbelievable how many kinds of birds you can find, for example, in Algonquin Park, and how many unique sounds they make. You might miss them if you didn't have a guide. To successfully navigate the trails, and to discover all the beauty and the wonder that there is in such a park, you need to have a reliable guidebook. Well, in a similar way, 
as we navigate the trails of life, we also need a guidebook. And thanks be to God that He has provided one in the Bible. But then a question arises, is this guidebook adequate? We know it's from God. We've been over that ground quite thoroughly. It comes with divine authority. So the Bible is certainly a critical source for guidance, but is it the only source for guidance? Is it enough for what we need? I mean, the trails of life, if you think about all the challenges we face, that life is difficult. The world is a big place. There are now eight billion people on this planet, and countless ideas are coming at us and circulating at any given time. Countless problems confront us. Don't we need some other instruction beside the Bible to see us safely through till the coming of the kingdom? That's really the question, the issue here in Article 7 of the Belgic Confession. And so I bring you this word of the Lord, the Bible's teaching is perfect and complete. We'll see that this teaching directs our worship and it directs our living. We might ask the question this way, is the Bible a complete guide? Or is there some source beside the Bible that can help us answer our questions as we find our way through life? Has God given some additional guide? When Guido de Bray was writing this confession, both the Roman Catholics of the day and the Anabaptists of the day both said, yes, there is an additional guide. But they pointed to two different kinds of guides. The Roman church taught and still teaches that the Bible alone is not enough. A Christian needs to be guided, they say, by both the Bible and the teaching of the church, which they have a word for. They call that the tradition with a capital T. Actual, uh, Article 7 actually refers to this tradition in uh, when it says in the second paragraph, we may not consider any writings of men, however holy these men may have been, of equal value with the divine scriptures, nor ought we to consider counsels, decrees, or statues, statutes of, of equal value with the truth of God, since the truth of God is above all. So, we're clear in our confession, not even the declarations of church councils, ancient church councils, are to be considered on par with the Scripture, with the Word of God. And yet that's exactly what Rome taught and still teaches today. They define tradition as the oral handing down of divine teaching from the apostles to those who came after them, to their successors, generation after generation. You might know that they believe that Peter, the apostle, became the first bishop in Rome and that he became the most important bishop in, in the church, so they would call him the first pope. They also teach that since Peter's day, there has been an unbroken succession of bishops in Rome, popes then, 
who have carried on this oral tradition, this teaching of the early church. So the Roman church ends up with two sources of God's instruction, and to them they both have equal authority. I want to quote to you some of their own uh, teaching on this from their catechism, which was written in our generation. I quote, Sacred tradition and sacred scripture are both closely bound together and communicate with one another for both of them flowing out from the same divine wellspring come together in some fashion to form one thing and move towards the same goal. And then just a little bit later in the, their catechism, both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. So, from Rome's point of view, what is written in the New Testament has apostolic authority, but so does what is declared by the church through the pope or through its councils. For Rome, they say it's the Bible plus tradition. That's what we have to take our guidance from, both sources. And nowhere does this appear more clearly than in the worship services of the Roman church. That's why Article 7 near the beginning mentions these services. The whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in it at length. It is therefore unlawful even for an apostle to teach otherwise than we are now taught in Holy Scripture. You see, what a church teaches... It's theology. It comes to light in the worship services. That's where you see it in action. So if you've ever been to a Roman Catholic church, you would know what they experience. And certainly in those days, a Roman Catholic worshiper was confronted in their services, is confronted still with many things not found in the Bible. They come out of the tradition. So as an average worshiper walks into the church building in, in the 1500s, 1600s. They were told, and they still are taught, to regard that place as a sanctuary. That's what they call the place where they, where they have worship. They call it a sanctuary. What does that word mean? It means a holy room. The holy room contains holy things. In their way of thinking, it's a room comparable to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or temple. And a worshiper would see stained glass windows, typically, and, and frescoes on the wall, and statutes and images picturing many people or many scenes from the Bible. These stories of the Bible would be told in pictures. They would see an altar at the front of the, at the, front of the sanctuary where the priest would say special words and the bread would be turned into the body of Jesus and the blood would be turned or the wine would be turned into the blood of Jesus they saw confessional booths alongside of the sanctuary where you had opportunity to go in and confess your sins do some kind of penance and receive official pardon from God uh, through the agency of the priest in a different room you could buy indulgences to rescue souls of departed loved ones who were now in purgatory as 
the Roman church taught. The whole service in those days was spoken in Latin, which only a few could understand. And where did all these ideas come from? They came out of the tradition of the church. None of this comes from the Bible. Not out of, none of this is, is found in the examples of the apostles, but it comes out of the imagination of the leadership of Rome. And they reasoned along these lines. You know, the Bible, they say, doesn't give specifics on how the church should worship in the New Testament, and so the church has to fill in the blanks. And it's at that point the Reformers said, no. The Bible is sufficient. The Bible has enough. The Bible is the only authority that we need to teach us how to be saved and how to worship God. That's why in every Reformed or Presbyterian, faithful Reformed or Presbyterian worship service that you, you would walk into, you would see an obvious stark contrast to what you find in a Roman Catholic worship service. When we walk into a, a building on Sunday, we walk in not into a sanctuary, we walk into an auditorium. This, this space is not a holy space. This is a place where we meet God and we listen to God. That's why we call it an auditorium, not a sanctuary. God doesn't live in this building like He once lived in the temple, as we saw this morning. You know, sometimes in our prayers, I think we get that a little bit mixed up. We, we talk about and, and we say, or we thank God that we could go up to His house today. Thank you, Lord, that we could go to your house this morning or that we went to your house this afternoon. When we say that, what are we thinking? What do we mean? Is this building God's house? It's not really God's house, is it? Not in the sense that the temple was God's house. The house of God, as we saw this morning, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the, the Zion, the city of Zion, is not a building. It's you, the people. It's the gathering of the church. So we could all stand up right now. We could take this gathering and walk over to Brother Ben's machine shed and gather a bunch of chairs around and sit in there, and we would be the house of God over there. The house is the people. And in our worship services, you do not find an altar here at the front. You find a simple table on which the Lord's Supper is celebrated. For the Bible says that Christ has brought one sacrifice for all time on Golgotha, so we don't have an altar to reenact the sacrifice like Rome does. And you won't find pictures of Jesus hanging on a cross, for the Bible says He's no longer on the cross, right? In every Roman Catholic church, you see Jesus pictured on a cross, that's their theology at work. They think that Jesus is re-sacrificed every time the, the Mass is enacted. We know the Bible says otherwise. The centerpiece of our hall of worship is not the altar for the Mass, it's the pulpit for the preaching. And in our church buildings, you will look in vain for 
frescoes and, and, and stained glass windows depicting the passion of Christ because the Bible says that it's through the preaching, through the preaching of Christ that the Holy Spirit works faith in the hearts of His people. And it's not through books for the laity. It's not through pictures and scenes. And you can't, buy, you can't buy indulgences in this building or any Reformed or Presbyterian building. You won't find a confessional here. You won't find a rosary. And you know that I'm not a priest, right? Because the Bible says that the priesthood of the Levites has passed away. Jesus is our high priest. We don't have priests. We don't have holy spaces anymore. We have instead a holy people. We don't come to a temple anymore. We are the temple. We don't have priests offering sacrifices. We have ministers who serve up the Word of God, who preach and who teach. We don't have a hierarchy of power from priest to bishop to archbishop to cardinal all the way up to pope. No, that's Rome and Rome's tradition. But we have what the Bible teaches, equal offices, deacon, elder, minister, equal the Bible is God's complete and perfect guide book. And when you study the Scriptures, you find that He has included everything we need to worship Him properly. God has always been concerned that His people worship Him in the way that He wants to be worshipped. He pressed home that principle in Deuteronomy 12, which we read Verse 4, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. What way? Well, from the context, it's the way that the Canaanites were worshiping their gods. God says, don't you dare worship me like they worship their gods. Those pagans, of course, never intended to worship Yahweh. They were busy worshiping their own idols and false gods in their various methods, but those methods were attractive to the Israelites, and the Lord knew that. That's why He warns them. Those methods were quite popular. Have a few shrine prostitutes hanging around, mix in some sex with your offerings, very attractive to people, set aside some sacred stones and some poles, organize a liturgical dance like the priests of Baal do, and when it's a really, really super serious occasion, burn your children in the fire to Molech. And you read in the history of Israel that they adopted these customs in the worship of the Lord. Are we attracted to the style of the world? The style of the pagans has changed. But do we look to the way the world worships its gods and think, hmm, maybe we could worship our God that way? Drama and video look very appealing, very enticing. Why don't we have a dramatic presentation of the gospel for for people to observe, wouldn't a really sick, slick, well-acted, professional production really bring it home to people? I mean, really, it could move the hearts of people like, like nothing, right? 
What about performance music groups with with a sound and light show well choreographed and well-timed fog machine? They're really, really powerful at concerts. Why not bring them into the church? Get people into the mood. Get them stoked up. What we need are more visuals. That's how people learn today. With shorter attention spans, video is the way to go. High-tech, slick messaging, professionally prepared sound bites with lots of pictures and images to capture the imagination and to draw the attention. Wouldn't that make a a great worship experience? Wouldn't that move hearts and and get people stirred up? People would really like that, right? And, And church would be packed, wouldn't it? People would like that, probably. But would the Lord like that? Would the God we're worshiping like that? We're here to please Him, right? That's what we're doing. So what does He want? This is the question that very, very few seem to ask. But it's the most important question of all. Is the God that we say we're worshiping, is He happy with the way that we're worshiping Him? And before we get our backs up and and demand, well, what's wrong with this or what's wrong with that, we need to first ask ourselves in humility, wait a sec, what's right with it? What's right with it? What is the biblical backing for why we worship God in this way or that way? For that's the principle of the Bible found throughout Scripture. God says it in Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it, and you shall not take away from it. God commands us to worship Him on the basis of what He says, not on the basis of what He doesn't say, on the basis of what's absent. God does not allow us or want us to use our imagination to do what feels good to us. No, He wants us to worship Him according to how He's instructed us and given us His wishes in Scripture. And when you look in Scripture, there's lots of things you don't find. For example, the Bible, in the Bible, God says nothing about using drama to worship Him. So we simply don't use drama. We don't try to set the emotional mood by lighting, sound, visual effects, and a powerful music performance. God hasn't said anything about that. Is there no emotion in our worship? Of course. But the Word of God sets the tune and the tone, and the Word and Spirit stir up our emotions as the Word and Spirit go forth. And those emotions are stirred up to bring Him adoration. God has commanded His church to preach the Word, and He has promised to work faith in the hearts of His chosen people through the mighty power of the Holy Spirit, whether they have short attention spans or not. Whether they are visual learners or not, the Lord, the the Almighty Spirit of God does not need pictures to work faith in the hearts of any of His children. 
And so in our worship services, we, the church, put a priority on the, the simple, clear, powerful preaching of the Word. The Word of God says nothing about setting up choirs, so we don't use choirs in worship. The choir and orchestra of Psalm 150 and earlier in the Old Testament period, well, that belonged to the Levites. Levites did have a choir. And they had a number of instruments which they used to accompany the singing and even the instruments played on their own, but all of those things are part of the shadows of the Old Testament that have passed away. What God has commanded is that His church sing His praises. And that's exactly what the New Testament teaches and shows by example. Think of how the Lord Jesus and His disciples sang a hymn on the night before He was crucified. That's why we strive to have a songbook from which the whole congregation can sing His praise in unison together. Now, it's true, of course, that the Bible does not speak about an organ or a piano, and some Reformed churches make use of a guitar or a violin or another instrument of that nature. But do you know why the churches do it that way, why, why we have an organ, why we have a piano? The organ, the piano, is not to replace the Levitical choir. It's to aid the singing of God's people. That's all it is. It's an aid. It's to lead the singing. It's to guide the singing. It's to serve the singing. But neither of the instruments stand alone as a, a form of worship. You know, in the Old Testament, the Levitical choir and orchestra, they did the singing for the people. Their music and their song stood on their own as acts of worship on behalf of the people. But in the New Covenant era, God commands that the people should sing themselves. The voice that God wants to hear praising Him is the voice of the congregation. As Paul says in Colossians 3, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's also why it's entirely appropriate if at certain moments when the congregation has the melody well in hand, and, and Eric did that this morning a few times and others do it as well, that the organ or the piano, it falls quiet and the voices of God stand front and center as clear and as strong as possible because that's what the Lord is most pleased with, the voices of the people rising up to praise Him. Hopefully by now you can, you can see my, my point. You can go through every element in our order of service, right? We have the order of service on the back of our bulletins. You can literally take line by line and find each element rooted in the Bible, not in tradition, in the Bible. The call to worship comes out of the Bible. We sing psalms come out of the Bible. The hymns are teaching of the Bible put into words, uh, into a melody. We have the Ten Commandments from out of the Bible. We profess our faith in obedience to the command of the Lord to profess our faith. We give offerings to the poor, which is a command in the Scriptures to do. There's the preaching, which stands central. Romans 
chapter 10, there's the sacraments. We're commanded to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're commanded to baptize all of these elements that we have in our service. And you can go through every faithful Reformed and Presbyterian service. They have all the same. Well, there might be variations in terms of order, but they have all the same elements because they're rooted in Scripture, not in tradition or in any other source. So what we do here every Lord's Day, brothers and sisters, is we worship God in the way that He wants to be worshipped. A lot of folks today, generally speaking, they think that how we worship God is kind of a free-for-all. It's open to whatever you think is best. But Bible-believing Christians say only what God wants, only what He commands. And that makes sense, right? I mean... He's God. He's the one who wants us and calls us to worship Him in the first place. So it only makes sense that He cares how we go about worshiping Him. And so we take our marching orders, we take our direction from the Word of God, from the Bible alone. In the same way that we direct all our living, all of our lives, according to the Bible alone. I wonder if you noticed the word infallible near the end of Article 7. We therefore reject with all our heart whatever does not agree with this infallible rule. As the apostles have taught us, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. What does infallible mean? Well, it means this it's not able to fail. It is entirely reliable. And the, the, the reasoning works or go, unfolds like this. The, the Word of God, it reflects the character of God. Because God Himself is totally trustworthy, reliable, unable to lie, true, His Word is all those things too. Because His Word comes from Him. God is as good as His Word, and His Word is as good as God. And only this book, you see, only this book has that character. Only the Bible, and not tradition, capital T, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Only the Bible is pure truth. Only the Bible is perfect. Only the Bible is unable to fail. And so only the Bible is our infallible rule for what we believe and how we live. It's our authoritative and it's our singular guidebook to get through life. There is no other guidebook that God gives to help us on our way. We confess that important implication at the end of the first paragraph, since it is forbidden to add or to take away from the Word of God, it is evident, therefore, that the doctrine is most perfect and complete in all respects. The confession cites Deuteronomy 12, 
which we read, and then it mentions Revelation 22 in the footnote where the Lord Jesus himself says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So we've got something similar written in, in Deuteronomy and then again in Revelation. And if those things were true for Revelation and for all the commands of God through Moses, how can that also not be true of the rest of Holy Scripture? We know that we have God's Word, God's message to us fully contained in the Bible, and we do not acknowledge any other message coming from Him or contained in any other source. The canon of Scripture is complete. There is no more uh, teaching, there's no other teaching from God that's coming down to us by which we direct and rule our lives. This is the single source. And it's on this point that we bump up against the Anabaptist error. You remember that quite often in the Belgic we have either the Roman Catholic error or the Baptist, or Anabaptist error. And the Anabaptists teach that a Christian has to take direction uh, both from the Bible and from something they call inner revelation. Something that they mean by that, that God speaks directly to a person's spirit. So Rome talked about the Bible plus tradition, but the Anabaptists said, no, the Bible plus inner light or inner revelation. They even tended to put the accent on what was revealed to them in their spirits because some of them, back in the day at least, taught that the written word was a dead letter. And so it needed to be lit up by direct revelation from God to your spirit. Now, that idea was very strong among a number of the Anabaptists in Guido de Bray's day, but it still lives. It's still around. Among the Mennonites, among the Pentecostals and the Charismatics, they promote the idea that God reveals things to His people by an inner prompting or enlightenment of the Spirit. A message will come to someone's mind in some mysterious way. It'll lay upon that person a conviction to take action. And with some groups, this is quite radical. Perhaps you remember from a generation ago, people like Oral Roberts or Harold Camping who were on television and in the media making very bold predictions about what God was going to do as they were informed and, and had the Spirit reveal that to them. They thought for sure that Jesus was coming back on a certain date, and they made a number of prophecies and made a number of claims based upon the revelation of the Spirit to them. Both were proven to be false prophets. And others will make, mis make statements that God has told them in no uncertain terms that they've got to do this or they've got to do that with their life. And, and for others, it's, it's more subtle. This idea leads them to, to say things like, well, I, I feel that it is God's will that I do this 
or I feel it's God's will that we do that. And they're very sincere, okay? I take nothing away from their sincerity, and they're very sure that God has revealed to them His will for their lives at that time. However sincere they might be, brothers and sisters, they are sincerely mistaken. Why? Because the Bible never teaches that God will reveal to you or me the pathway of our life. He does not indicate in Scripture that He makes new things known to His people. God has given us all we need to know to become saved. He's done that in the, the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles' teaching of the New Testament. And Christians must rest firmly and contentedly on that. We, we have to derive everything from that, sola scriptura. Not the Bible plus inner revelation, but the Bible alone. Well, maybe you ask, wait a sec, doesn't the Spirit guide us? Shouldn't we pray for the guidance of the Holy Spirit? Yes, absolutely, 100%. But the Holy Spirit guides us in accordance with the written Word. Every decision that we make has to be held up according to the standard of the Bible. Does the decision I'm about to make or have made, does it agree with the Bible? Excellent. Then it's okay. Pray for God's blessing over it. Or does your decision in, after evaluation, does it disagree with the Bible? Well, that's easy. Repent. Change your heart. Change your mind. And do what God wants you to do. Well, what about a decision that is neither of those things? A decision that is neither right nor wrong. What about when there's two opposite ways I could go in a certain area and both agree with the Bible? I think this is where a lot of people are struggle. Like which job should I apply for? Or if I've been offered two jobs, which should I take? Or should I go to college or university? Or, or which one should I go to perhaps? Or maybe the question is about a relationship. Should I ask that girl out or... Should I say yes if that young man asks me? In all these and in, in, in all similar situations, going either way is often neither against or uh, neither, not, not against Scripture. So you could go either direction. That leaves me confused. Should I not pray for the Spirit's guidance? Yes, please do. And even ask advice from your parents or people that you respect in your life. And once you've prayed for wisdom and clarity, once you've thought the matter through, once you've sought advice, then do this. Go and make a decision. The Lord will guide your thinking. The Lord will guide your decision-making, but He nowhere promises to reveal to you in advance His specific plan for your life. So go and make a decision. Do something. 
with your life in His service, and find that the Holy Spirit certainly influences your thinking. He even directs sovereignly our decision-making, but He promises no revelation in advance of what the plan is. So go ahead and make a decision. God will guide you. God gives you that freedom and that responsibility. And as you do so, leaning on Him for guidance, you will find your steps walking in the way the Lord had planned for you. All of our decisions have to be in line, in agreement with the Bible. That's our litmus test. That's our guidebook. Otherwise, we will go off the path. And that goes for also for the collective decisions of the church, including our adopted confessions, like our Belgian confession. Sometimes people accuse the Reformed churches of, of putting the confessions on par or even above Scripture. But in reality, nothing could be further from the truth. Look what we say right here in Article 7, second paragraph. We may not consider any writings of men, however holy these men may have been, of equal value with the divine Scriptures. This is Guido de Bray saying, listen, what I'm writing here is... is below Scripture. Here's the Bible. Here's what I'm writing. And the church says the same. The Belgian Confession is below Scripture. Heidelberg Catechism, below Scripture. Scripture is number one. Everything and everyone bows to the authority of God's Word. Every confession of the church remains subject to that authority. And you remember that the confessions of the church are nothing other than summaries of what the Bible teaches, right? That's something quite different from the Roman Catholic Church's tradition, which is an amalgamation of teaching, they say, from the early church, which runs alongside of the Bible. And a lot of that teaching you can't find in the Bible. It's extra. But the teaching here in the Belgic and in the Heidelberger and in the canons, that is the teaching of the Bible. It's a whole different ballgame. And please, if you find something in here that is not in agreement with the Bible, come and tell me. Tell the elders. If we're convinced, we'll work to change it. Did you know that there have been changes to the Belgian Confession? Look at the footnote sometime at Article 36, where something was taken out of the Belgian Confession. We still have it marked as a footnote. So the, the confessions are not infallible. The Scripture is infallible. We don't tinker with the Bible. But if there's any imperfections that can be adjusted, then we should do so in the confessions. So there's really only one infallible rule, only one source of truth of God, and that's what we go by. The Scriptures alone tell us about God and our Savior and the way to be saved. The Scriptures alone show us the way out of the darkness of this world by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. The Scripture alone teaches us how to walk with our God in holy, thankful living. And so we, we base everything on the Scripture alone. Amen.